Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Welcome back to Mom Brain. It's Ilaria and Daphne. And today we get to talk to Dr. Dave Anderson of the Child Mind Institute. He is somebody who I think is so brilliant. Um, I actually sought him out um, just to ask questions about, you know, very like regular parenting things. I know he's like the super duper expert and works with, you know, lots of really tough cases. Um, but I just think that he's got really great parenting advice, even for the, the simple things like sibling rivalry and, you know, making sure that I'm, I'm disciplining my kids in, in a very thoughtful way. Um, but, you know, we really do also you get into some of the, the more challenging topics such as ADHD, which is his specialty. Um, we, we do touch a little bit on autism. Um, he speaks a million miles uh-huh. a minute. He he's is super, he, super smart. He's like, you're he's wanna, really smart. You're maybe gonna, don't he, listen to this in traffic. Like, Listen to this with your headphones on when you're on a walk and really pay attention to what he's saying because he's just, he's brilliant. And I love that his focus is on strategies for parents. Like he really wants to give parents the tools they need to help their kids succeed and help their kids. And his other, it seems like his other really big cause is don't be afraid to seek out an expert opinion. I think, I think you know the, the the sort of anticipation of a diagnosis or the anticipation that you'll get treatments that your kid doesn't need stops people from going and seeing an expert. And his thing is, it should be as as routine and as normal and without any stigma the way that going to a pediatrician is, because mental health is equally significantly important the way that physical health is. And and I love that. I thought that was really empowering and and important. Um and uh. And early intervention is is the best. So I think you guys are going to learn a lot, but but definitely like settle down, <laughs> S- settle down. And this might be one. I mean, I know that when I I listen to somebody um, who is this smart and this um, fast of a talker, um, <laughs> you sometimes have to listen to it again and again and again. So this might be the one that you like bookmark and you and you listen to more t- more than one time. And you know what? If you listen to him and you get every single word, you can be like, all right, Daphne and Ilaria. Um, maybe it's slow. just us and our mom <laughs> brains. Are slow this morning. You need some more coffee. All right. Oh enjoy. my gosh. What? Oh, Hello. bye. Hey, y'all. Oh. <laughs> She's got that sexy voice coming oh in. Okay, let's tell everyone who we're talking to and what we're talking about today. Dr. Anderson, you know what? Do us a favor and introduce yourself. Uh, My name is Dr. Dave Anderson. I'm a clinical psychologist at a place called the Child Mind Institute. I'm the senior director of the ADHD and Behavior Disorders Center and the senior director of our national programs and outreach. You know. Concise. You want me to keep going? (laughs) And then you you also are a father. That is true. I'm also a father to a two and a half year old son. Oh, wonderful. Parker. He's a good kiddo. And a husband. Right. Also a husband. I'm an expert breast pump cleaner. That's, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, like, I should include a title like senior director of household duties that make me, you know, soothe my own guilt for not having delivered our child. It allows you, know, you, allows you to spend that. yet another day in the home with <laughs> right. Parker, your exactly. wife. Exactly. <laughs> but my, my amazing wife, Dylan G., is a neuroscientist at Yale, and she's in clinical psychology there as well. So our whole family is psychologists. Wow. Yeah. What your you, son yeah, is in I for know. quite the road ahead. He already is highly sensitive to other people's crying. That was his most the focus of his most recent parent-teacher conference, is that he apparently cries longer than other children who cry over the actual thing that happened. He cries over their crying longer than they were crying oh, about the thing. For compassion. So Absolutely. So oh. much empathy and compassion. But they think he could probably recover a little quicker. So we're working on like some resiliency skills. Oh. Oh, that's so, so funny. Cute. I remember right. those first uh, parent-teacher conferences, and you would, you know, you, I, it still happens, you know, because my kids are all. But like it's so three weird month, three, to go three and listen old. to like a teacher be like, "So you're two-year-old." No, usually know? I have like tears of like because usually they're saying to you. I mean, like, a lot things, of times they're saying to you, they're like, "Oh, your child drew this circle, and they're so good at making circles." And you're like, "Yes, genius." <laughs> <laughs> well, for a psychologist, it's also that sometimes they don't know what you do, so they're starting off, and they're like, "Listen, let us talk to you about your child's social emotional." development. And we're like, right, tell us about <laughs> yes, that. This, you know, what sounds is this? good. No. Explain. The reality is, I still learn, you know, new things each time because I have my, you know, daddy blinders on. 
Yesterday, Parker slept for 10 minutes during preschool nap time, woke up because someone else was crying and then couldn't put himself back to sleep. And then continued to cry as he inevitably. I tried to take him out to a Mexican dinner, you know, while he's just freaking out on no sleep. It was good times. We had a lot of tortilla chips. How did did you deal with that? Well, as I think you said earlier, uh, we're fantastic as psychologists at giving out advice, not necessarily (laughs) on following it. So I accommodated almost every whim told to me in a whining voice, knowing that I was going to pay for it later. Uh, Sure, (laughs) I'll give you more tortilla chips. Like my biggest example is more just the fact that like I used to work with adoptive and foster families in Los Angeles and I would help families on sleep training, especially for kids who, you know, had gone through multiple homes and had never really had a consistent sleep schedule, I have completely failed at sleep training as a parent. I mean, for the last two months, he's pretty much in our bed every single night. I'm currently giving him a car every time he sleeps in his bed the whole night. Which well, I you're worse know. than I am. I'm a dollar. Right. I'm, I'm like, that's I it. thought I was a It's total a matchbox pushover. car. Maybe it comes out to a net dollar, but it's, you know. No, that's, well, you solid actually six do- that's a solid six dollars right. on Amazon, I know. Right, exactly. It's the type of behavioral system that most parents would gawk at and say, like, you want me to give him a car every time he sleeps in his bed? And, you know. Well, so, you do what you got to do. That That is, yeah, I feel so, like, rule of parenting number one is you do what works for your family slash do what works for you. Right. Okay, tell people, wh- what are some of the most common sort of um, challenges or, or, or you know, young, young kids? What are you seeing most frequently and what are you treating most frequently? I mean, the thing is, because we have kind of clinical centers at the Child Mind Institute, so because we have an ADHD and behavior disorder center, an anxiety disorder center, uh, you know, mood disorder center and a learning development center. Most of the referrals that come to me are kids with behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. So most of them are kids who are experiencing, uh, you know, prolonged tantrums, many tantrums a day. Uh, they're yelling and screaming at their parents. They're throwing things. If we're talking about the young age range, like three to seven, uh, it tends to be just that any time, you know, they're being told no or anytime the schedule changes or anytime they're having a preferred play toy or screen taken away or if there's any time pressure and everybody's kind of stressed, like getting out for school in the morning with multiple kids. Mm-hmm. Most of the referrals that I get tend to be kind of in that range, at least when they're younger kids. And it's just parents at their wit's end trying to figure out how to deal with these behaviors and still get the family out of the house or make it so that the other children in the house aren't taking their example from the one who's throwing the tantrum. Completely. What do you attribute those behaviors to? Is it is it something that's just biological? Is it something um, that, you know, is, is a trauma that happened to them? Um, is it just, you know, that the parenting can be better? Is it all of them in different situations? It's a great softball question. <laughs> that's, that's like my first two slides we in any presentation on, on, on behavior disorders. Right, exactly. right <laughs> Get me talking about my kid and just loosen me up. Um, no, it's, it's more that... Uh, You know, when we look at behavior disorders, or at least the emergence of uh, the categories of ADHD or, say, oppositional defiant disorder, some of it is genetic. Like, ADHD is thought to be, based on the research, you know, very genetically loaded. You're likely to have a parent or a first-degree relative who has ADHD symptoms if you yourself have ADHD symptoms. And so we expect that that's going to emerge early on in development. A kid who can't focus for as long as their peers, highly distractible. You know, for the kids with hyperactive impulsive symptoms, they're always getting into stuff that is off limits, not because they have any malicious intent, but just because they're not interested in anything boring or repetitive, anything that requires a lot of effort, you know, those kinds of things. So we look at that as something that emerges early on. The issue is naturally the way that we respond to it is that we think that maybe they're doing it intentionally or we try to discipline them or remove them from the particular thing or we rep them, reprimand them or give them, you know, a, a kind of talking to. And those things don't work. Uh Everything I just listed can work at some level, Mm. but it needs to be tweaked and also included in context with a number of other strategies. And then the thing is, there are also environmentally kind of derived, you know, behavior problems where we know that like certain factors like a kid with a reactive temperament. So a kid who kind of reacts uh, strongly to all kinds of different things early on in life or who can't be soothed effectively by a parent coupled with, say, harsh and inconsistent parenting. So parents who come in and say, look, kids should be, you know, seen and not heard. They should be listening to me. You know, I I come down hard whenever I see them misbehaving. I make sure that they understand that I'm the boss. Like those kinds of, you know, parenting styles can lead over time to huge power struggles. Because the the belief or the underlying belief is the loudest voice in the room is the one that should Mm -hmm. be listened to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you see that modeled for a kid, most kids try to be the loudest voice back. Right. So, so, so at the Child Mind Institute, what do you do to help 
ameliorate some of those sort of tendencies and help those families right. find their way back to like a place of normalcy in their everyday life and how they can cope with those I mean, for young kids, therapeutic approaches are sort of counterintuitive. Like what most people expect is that therapy is going to look like what it does on TV, which is that you sit across from a therapist, Mm -hmm. you talk about what it is that's ailing you, and then just by virtue of the miracle of sharing, you get better. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's not what works in child and adolescent treatment. So what we try to help parents of kids with behavioral disorders to, to think about, or parents who are just experiencing challenging behaviors. So the best approach, especially for young kids, is to intervene at the point of performance. You train the adults in the child's environment on behavior management strategies, and then if you train the adults, say, at home, their parents or caregivers, and you train the people who are working with them at school, you train you know their baseball coaches or whomever else you can get in contact with, when they see a consistent set of strategies applied, you're more likely to see improvements in behavior from the child. It's not about how many talks you give about the behavior. The reality is if you were able to change most children with behavioral issues, uh, you know, their behavior with uh, talking to, uh, you wouldn't need a therapist because most parents just do that kind of naturally. Similarly, if yelling or being coercive worked, again, you wouldn't need the extra support. But since that stuff doesn't really work for any human, what we try to do is, at least in behavioral therapy, help parents and teachers to understand kind of a balance of strategies that nurture a child and strategies that provide structure. So we try to make expectations more clear. We try to make sure that parents have a range of strategies for reinforcing positive behavior proactively, knowing what they're looking for and paying attention to it, which is against all of our nature. Most of us are negative behavior detectors, not ones who just walk into a room and say, you're both looking at me so attentively and making such great eye contact. And I really love the questions you've asked me so far because they're right in my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Like we don't normally create great specific praise right off the bat. We wait for something to go wrong and then we think we have to intervene. So we train parents to be more proactive in intervening when good things are happening as opposed to only being reactive when bad things are happening. Then we still train strategies around how to give effective commands, ignore minor misbehavior, and administer punishment in a way that's behaviorally informed. That's super interesting, actually, because I'm I'm just sitting here thinking about, um, so between us, we have seven children under five. (laughs) Um, For mine specifically, um, I have girl, boy, girl. And I think it's really interesting. uh, You know, each each of my children have things that they excel at and things that they struggle with. Um, It is... I'm trying to think of the last time that I proactively with my with my daughter, I do this because for some, I think probably some parent teacher conference, they were like, you know, she um, she writes her letters so nicely or whatever. So I when I when she, I see her doing her workbooks and she's really focused on them, I um, I'll say I love how hard you're working. I love that you're putting so much time into this and I'm excited to get to do blah with you after you're finished or whatever. But with my son, um I do like for athletics and things. I'll say, oh, I love that. You know, he, he he loves basketball. My son's like beyond obsessed with all ball sports. And we got him this little arcade basketball game for Christmas. And he will sit there and literally shoot this ball 50 times. But he's one of those people who cannot stand imperfection. Like he, I mean, he's not, he literally just turned three. It's close to your heart. I know. <laughs> I know that it's you. <laughs> and, and, you know, this, this is a game for seven year olds, 10 year olds. He probably makes six out of every 10 shots. And every time he doesn't make a That's shot, he's like, That's still a great shooting it's, percentage it's, for the NBA right there. I mean, like, I know, I'm trying to you know, get some you money can make a out career of it. <laughs> <on that, so. laughs> no, no. right. um, yeah, no, but, he, but no, that's what I mean is as an adult, you're like, Holy crap, this child. It's shooting and shooting and it's good. But he gets so frustrated with himself when he can't when he doesn't make the shot. Yeah. And so I've tried to be like, oh, I, I love that you did it again. I love that you made it in or, I, or not that you made it in, but I love that you kept practicing and then you made it in. Right. But other than that, I, I'm trying to think of the last time I would have said, oh, I, lo- I love that you're sitting quietly and playing so nicely or I love that you are being so patient with your sister. He's got a one year old sister who loves to like beat him and just sort of pat pat him right. on not beat him, pat him on the head, but it's a little harsh, you know, and it's um and that's a really good point is how do we how do we pay attention as adults to the behaviors we want to see more of and attribute good things to those and not focus on the negative so much. And I'm gonna do a mini consult on both his basketball behavior and then the other <laughs> yeah. stuff really quickly. Are you so an agent is, also? I mean what you what you highlighted was that like he's perfectionistic about his basketball behavior, which also undermines the impact of a parent's praise. Because if the oh, it has ob- nothing to do with me. He doesn't care about my approval at all. <laughs> and the reality is that's also the functions of behavior. Like what we know is that, you know, the functions of behavior, there are four of them. So you can have an internal sensory experience. Like in this case, that's his actual reward. It's not your attention. Although your attention may be a secondary you know, kind Mm -hmm. of motivator for the behavior. Mm -hmm. But for him, it's the pleasure that comes along with making a shot, the sense of accomplishment, the fact that he wants that feeling more. 
The other motivators can be escape, which means like if for some reason the basketball game, every time he, you know, missed a shot, it like sounded like a fire alarm, you'd see him running away from it. There can be attention, which is the fact that his mom is standing there watching him and he really loves that, or a tangible reward. Like if you said, I'll get you pizza if you make seven out of 10 shots, Mm -hmm. all of those things can be motivators. So the thing is, you're experiencing the same thing that a parent experiences watching their kid play on an iPad. It has nothing to do with your attention. They don't want to escape. And the iPad's already tangible. Reality is it's already rewarding behavior. They may do it forever. Mm. But you're trying to undermine his perfectionism. So what you want to focus on is how you normalize the behavior in question and make him think that that might actually be an objective and then get him congratulating himself at the same level that you are. And I don't actually normally have to consult with parents on getting their kid to lower the bar. Usually it's parents lowering the bar (laughs) that I have to consult on. But it's like, show him Steph Curry. Show him that the best three-point shooters in the NBA, you know, uh, Clay and Steph on the Golden State Warriors, you know, that they are unable to make more than, say, I don't actually know their percentage offhand, but I'm just going to go with like 50% of their (laughs) shots. Like Clay made 10 right in there, like the first quarter recently. So maybe they're anomalies. But if the best three-point shooters in the world only have this Mm -hmm. shooting percentage, we got to shoot for that. Like that's our job in terms of managing our expectations. So you show him those videos and by that you connect with him on his interest. And then you can, you know, have a praise that may be more relevant for him. Like right now you just shot a better shooting percentage than Steph Curry. Like, I am so impressed Mm. with the shots that you made rather than just being each shot. You're at least aligning on what the behavior of focus is. Right. Now to your point about reinforcing. The thing is, with most kids, it's really easy to reinforce around things that are clear, you know, signs of achievement within society. Sports achievement, academic achievement, those types of things. It's harder for any adult to think of what they want in terms of social shaping or behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you sit down at the dinner table and you just expect that the kids are going to, by osmosis, figure out through modeling what they're supposed to do. Well, because that's what our parents told us. Like, oh, we just sat at dinner and everyone ate together and everyone was like, I honestly think back to when our parents were raising us or when their parents were raising them. There were no iPads. There were no there weren't even like there were no cell phones. Obviously, there were no distractions of that kind. And yet somehow they made it on long car trips and where all the places we go where screen time feels inevitable and and modern distractions feel inevitable. So, yes, we expect them to, to learn by osmosis how to behave and how to be good, quote unquote. Right. But we also adapt to whatever environment or time we are born in. It's absolutely true. So the balances of work and play, the fact that digital means of amusement are available, you know, whether parents, you know, parented without amusements at the table in previous generations, this is the reality of this generation. You know, there are screens. You do have TVs. Many families have them in every single room. So the question is how you set boundaries around them and how you make it so that you still get the behaviors that you're looking for. And for most parents, it's that they're proactively educating the kids on what behaviors they'd like to see at the dinner table. So, you know, from the moment they start eating with family, it is, you know, I want you to know that as a family, we all use our fork and we try to get all the food into our mouths (laughs) as like, you know, young toddlers. (laughs) And then as they start getting more and more of the food into their mouth and their face starts to look less like, you know, as target practice, you keep reinforcing that particular behavior. But we try to get families to think about what behavior they're focused on, especially with young kids, at dinner. Is it eating with utensil? Is it giving other people the chance to talk? Is it, you know, drinking a little bit of water during the meal? Or is it saying thank you to the chef? I've seen families where the meal is a complete mess in terms of manners, but everyone is thanking the parent who cooked the meal, you know, for cooking the meal. So it it just depends on what a family wants to focus on. And you don't get humans to start showing a behavior by just criticizing them after the fact, you know. I think so many times people, not not just through worry, but we look at our kids, we're obsessed with milestones. We, you know, any amount of crying sometimes can feel overwhelming. Any amount of hitting, any amount of throwing things, just any kind of bad behavior. When is it a problem and when do we just have to be like, you know what, they're just kids? When we're at home and when our listeners are at home, I mean, obviously we shouldn't necessarily self-diagnose our kids, but it's our job to watch them every single day and and make sure that they're going on a certain path. What are certain things to look out for? When do we just need to take a deep breath and just say they're kids and they're going to grow out of it? So I'll throw out a point first, and that is that uh, therapists don't bite. 
So this idea that a parent has to be as informed as a clinician about whether or not there's a problem is something we'd love to do away with. Just because we want, you know, in general across uh, the entire field, we want to increase access to mental health services and decrease the stigma that comes along with seeking them. Because I'd much rather that a parent have access to a clinician and say, I'm wondering if this is actually a problem, than do what the research shows parents do, which is notice a problem and then wait two to four years before they actually consult a professional on it. And the, the reason for this is that we want to make sure that consulting with mental health professionals is about as mundane or run-of-the-mill as consulting with a pediatrician. We, we want people to realize that that's kind of you know what's going on. But I think within... Uh, you know, many of the kind of media-focused discussions, there's this sense that what clinicians want to do is diagnose as many people as possible and lure them into treatment. And that's really not why anybody gets Which into Which often means medication. I mean, it could. I'm a psychologist. I can't prescribe medication. So I've got to have some other motivation other than wanting to get kids to be medicated. I think that that's commonly the ascribed kind of, you know, motivation for a psychiatrist. But... I don't meet psychiatrists who have a lack of patients asking for treatment. Right. You know, so in that sense, you know, I think there's this idea that there must be these psychiatrists who don't have any patients coming in. The only way that they will is if they convince people to medicate themselves. We don't really have a problem with whether or not you know, people are, are wanting to utilize psychiatric medications. It's more about how informed we are about them. So talking about how parents can think for kids. You know, there are no objective tests of DSM diagnoses. So all of our... I'm sorry, DSM. Yeah, what is Sorry. Uh, there are no... There are I know no, we're really smart. Right. There are, just... Exactly. I, I realize I should not necessarily just throw out abbreviations. Um, it's more that for, for all psychiatric diagnoses, there are not blood tests for them. We don't have brain tests for them. Right. The science isn't there yet. Right. So the reality is if you're going to be diagnosed with something, it comes from meeting with an informed clinician and then helping to give them as much information as possible about your child and then having them make a determination as to whether or not your child's symptoms fit into a clinically severe range or a relevant category of symptoms mm -hmm. that we have, you know, within our kind of diagnostic manual. Now, when we talk about how to make a diagnosis, these are all behavioral symptoms. So you have a list of symptoms, and what you're assessing is an abbreviation called FIDI, which I will define. Mm -hmm. Frequency, intensity, duration, and impairment. Okay. You're trying to figure out how long the how actually how frequently the behavior is occurring, how intense it is when it does occur, how long it's been happening, and how impairing it is to the child at home, at school, or with peers. Mm -hmm. And you don't make a diagnosis unless you see all four of those categories occurring. So even though these symptoms are often publicized as, you know, things that happen to everyone, like, for example, with depression, people feel irritable. That happens. Or people feel sad. Similarly, with ADHD, people feel distractible. Or sometimes they do feel like they need to move around and they don't want to stay in their seat. What you're taking is normal human behavior and trying to say, when does it hit an extreme? When is it an extreme where this person's mental anguish around this is too much or it's causing them so much impairment in settings where we want them to function that they really need treatment to bring them back into the normal range? That's all psychiatric diagnosis is. How do we figure out if someone falls into that range where it's really, A, impairing their functioning now and, B, likely to have a really negative effect on their development and how do we bring them back into the normal range? At the same time, because it's not just a yes or no, you have this or you don't, but rather a spectrum of human behavior, if someone has even a mild level of this, the same intervention should work to bring them back into kind of the normative range. So if a parent is seeing behavior at home, the same interventions that would work for a kid who has clinically severe behavioral difficulties likely work even for mild behavioral problems, which is one of the reasons why you have, for example, in the field... Uh, Alan Kasdan is one of the creators of parent management training, one of the major behavioral parent training uh, approaches, has one book called The Kasdan Method for Parenting the Defiant Child, which is much more oriented toward, you know, uh, clinical treatment of kids with behavior disorders. He also has another book called The Everyday Parenting Toolkit, about 100 pages shorter, sounds very positive. It's the exact same material. It's just 100 pages shorter and oriented toward normally developing kids because the interventions work similarly no matter what behavioral issues you're seeing. It's just that it's marketed to a different audience that doesn't want to label their kid as defiant in the bookstore mm -hmm. right. or on Amazon. So in theory, the strategies, let me, let me ask a more maybe generic but inflammatory yeah. question. Could all children benefit from 
the the treatment or the therapies that you use? That is the focus of some of these treatments. So Triple P, which is the positive parenting program, actually has levels where it's population-based, then it's prevention, and then it's intervention. So the idea is that there's a kind of light version that every single parent could get that would benefit every parent related to behavior mm-hmm. management. Then there's also a prevention version where you take, for example, uh, kids who've been through multiple foster homes or families who are reunited after uh, you know, being separated for abuse or something like yeah. that, and you, you give these uh, strategies, although that could be also intervention too. And then there's also the kids who have clinically relevant difficulty where you intervene. And the idea is that you've got kind of you know, small, medium, and large doses of intervention depending on the severity of the issues that you're dealing with. But that's one of the reasons why you know, we do so much parent outreach and educator outreach is we're trying to make sure that at a baseline, most parents have at least some awareness of what works for human behavior. The other thing that we talk about with these strategies is they work for all humans. Like in general, when we look across couples therapy, when we look across how you consult with bosses and their employees and parents and their children, the same strategies for shaping human behavior apply. Make your expectations clear, specific, and measurable up front. Make sure that you reinforce positive behavior at a higher ratio than you give attention to negative behavior. Ignore minor stuff you don't need to necessarily you know, concern yourself with. And utilize consequences consistently, sparingly, and for brief periods of time so as to correct the behaviors in question. Can that you repeat stuff all of that again? Right. That's no. very impressive. Four, four very useful tips. And it's, right. I'm sitting here thinking about every relationship I have, and it would be every single one of them would be healthier if I was more consistent, more willing to let small things slide, more able with the other two that I'm missing. More right. More cons- <laughs> so it's more consistent with your expectations yes, up front expectations. with specific and measurable expectations, so not tough. just be better. Uh, yeah. You know. Well, exactly, because right. I think that's. In in your frustration with like if you have a if you have a kid who throws tantrums all the time, right? It's hard to say. It's hard for you to even get clear in your own brain as the parent what would look better to me. Like at what like what is progress in the right direction, and right. how do you define that in sort of measurable quantities? Now you're talking like a behaviorist. See, I mean, this is see. We just need you here for a few more this, hours, right. and then we'll be ready. Soon you're gonna know <laughs> all of his letters that he's putting together. Right, exactly. <laughs> PPD. All I need is an I, is, I know. <laughs> Soon all of Triple these things. P. By the way, I think you threw out PPD there, I sure which did. I believe is a, is a medical thing? test for tuberculosis. Um, but anyway, uh, no. The thing is, when we when we talk about kind of setting up specific expectations or, or working with child behavior, the formula, for example, for that treatment is that we get parents spending more quality time with their child in which they are not trying to give a ton of directions or criticize their behavior or correct them. Then we help parents to make their expectations for, you know, the day or certain times of day clear. We try to help them to build up their skills at catching the child being good more often Exactly what you're saying, ignore the small things and then engage in a consequence consistently when really huge misbehavior occurs, like hitting a sibling or, uh, you know, in some families it might be using swear words or in others it might be jumping on the furniture. But we get parents to focus in on the behaviors that are really in need of punishment, not just punishing because the child steps, you know, out of bounds at all, and trying to figure out how we can keep children in zones in the sense of, you know, most of the day we want to be at this baseline of trying to catch a child being good and reinforcing good behavior. Then for a part of the day, we want to be in that place where we grit our teeth, ignore and try to not pay attention to the behavior, even as we might be trying to redirect the child or give them appropriate choices. Mm-hmm. Then there might be a portion of the day where we're in timeout or we've removed some privileges or, uh, you know, we've moved bedtime up or something like that. I went to go see Dr. Anderson mostly just because I'm so fascinated with with his parenting methods um so i've been able i've been able to <laughs> yeah, to pick to pick his brain you make me sound like I, i'm some sort of wizard i don't have parenting <laughs> you are, methods you are these a are, wizard these are just research-based parenting strategies are, that you, okay, know, you, you, you are train. a wizard we are right. we are the desperate mothers of seven children five and under <laughs> right. any kind of glimmer of hope or wisdom even somebody just saying to us it's going to be okay right. it's just like the the clouds part the angels 
angels are coming out. They're singing. It's great. You know, I mean, I, I have to say one of the and I, I did find that I naturally did this, but it, it did help me to do it even more is just to constantly, you know, notice when they're doing something that's really great. And I have like my like bottom line things. I want things to be kind. I like meaning like nonviolent, you know, respectful. I, I want them to be giving, right. you know, I, I want them to be good listeners. You know, I have like a few things that I really hope for. And then when they do stuff that's kind of naughty, like they're going to throw something, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'll, you know, redirect them or we'll kind of ignore it. Or maybe like, you know, what, let's not do that again. You know, today Rafa drew on the wall, right. you know, like, didn't I didn't like that? That then I had to take like a little eraser. <laughs> that and like, wasn't erase. in your value statement <laughs> of giving and sharing statement. and holding and loving. <laughs> that wasn't in my value right. statement, but I didn't need to make a big deal about it. Right. It was it was something that was going to be okay in the end, and something that I think that every parent, you know, that ends up ends up dealing with. Now, you know, people with ADHD um, and ADD and all these different things that are. Oh, wait, very, Laura, oh, I want to go sorry, back sorry, to one sorry. of the okay, things you back, said go because back. I got I got to praise you for oh, that. Oh, thanks. It's that. It's hard for most busy parents to have even the moment to reflect on what you just summarized, which is the biggest values you have for your kids. And what we try to do with most parents is once you have those kind of like 5,000 foot values, like you want your kids to be good at sharing and great listeners, but at the same time, they're really young and they don't get a lot of these social skills. What we try to get down to specifics with with any parent is what does that look like in practice? You know, what would that look like for a three-year-old, you know, in a play situation where they're being tested with a couple siblings? You know, how would you know that they're listening? Mm-hmm. How would you know that they're sharing? What we're trying to do is make it so that rather than you know, have a parent be in this mindset of, I am waiting for someone to chuck a toy at someone else or draw on the wall. And then that is the moment where I will intervene. But for the meantime, maybe I'll check my phone for a second because they're actually playing nicely, which no judgment, everybody's doing. But it's more that we want it to instead be a mindset of, okay, remember my values. You know, I know some kid's going to draw on the wall at some point, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to intervene. All right, put that aside for a sec. Who's sharing right now? Who's listening to somebody developmentally appropriate level? And the more you can catch those things, the more, A, your kids start to do those behaviors more, and B, they start to expect that mommy's speech isn't always corrective. That it won't always be, you drew on the wall, give me the crayons. And then also just emotionally for myself, by already having that conversation of like, I know somebody's going to draw on the walls, I know there's going to be hitting, I know that that this stuff is going to happen. It helps me to not flip out. Yeah. Right. Because if I have such a high expectation that I am so wound tight, Mm -hmm. and then I will will explode. Whereas I'm like, okay, that I look over and I'm like, of course that's happening now. This and this and this is happening. And of course, Rafa just took a pencil and just like scribbled all over the wall really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just a moment of like, I need to take a little laugh for myself and then I need to be firm with him. Then I, then he always, you know, he always says to me, you don't like me. And I'm like, of course I like you. I like you. I love you. I just would like if you draw, drew on a piece of paper. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. And keeping it really simple. And I don't need to, I don't need to yell yell at him right. about it. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, so much of this sounds like it actually is parent training, not child training, which is really interesting. He just gave me the bingo sign. Um, yeah, no, that is, <laughs> I, I just gave you the double point double fingers point. right there. Yeah, exactly. He just like, gave me the <laughs> Wild West gun symbol. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, it was, but that's, I mean, that is, Again, we keep coming back to this, funnily enough, in the conversations we've had this week, um, or what, what will have been many weeks for you guys listening to the podcast we've recorded, It is um, thinking about motherhood before I became a mother was about me, and motherhood now that I'm actually a mother is about my children. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, the strategies that we're talking about uh, in terms of raising happy, confident kids, actually... Um, we we had Dr. Tova Klein on the show recently, and she said, your job as a parent is not to make your kids happy. You cannot make your kids happy. Mm-hmm. Humans have to make themselves happy. And actually, kids of all humans are really good at making themselves happy for the most part. Um, but, you know, if you're looking to raise confident and, and at least well-adjusted and adaptable kids, it's pretty much dependent on how you respond to different situations because they're testing you they're testing their environment they're testing themselves and your ability to moderate and kind of regulate your response seems to be as as important if not more than them than you giving them good strategies too which i mean the thing is the reason why these interventions are called behavioral parent training which is hard for some parents because they think my child's the one throwing the tantrum right you know why are we training me in this <laughs> and we often say to parents it's not your fault you're just the solution but the thing is 
you know, with the parental emotion regulation piece as well, that's another thing that shows Mm -hmm. up over and over the sense that if you can't keep yourself calm in difficult situations, this also goes hand in hand with praise. It's that what we know about child development is that if kids get positive feedback for the good behaviors that they're engaging in, the same time they know where the guardrails are and they watch a parent model resilience and also let them, you know, deal with discomfort a little bit or sit with discomfort. So in the sense that if a parent knows that their child is uncomfortable, but it's not something they can change for them, or it's something they're just going to have to weather, that can be a great message to a kid. Look, you're talented in all these other areas. You hear me telling you about this. This is something that's just going to be harder for you. And, you know, I wish that I could make it go away, but I can't. But I'm going to be right here next to you as you go through it. That becomes their coping language with themselves as adults. They remember where their areas of strength are because we're not utilizing praise just to build up their self-esteem as kind of a, a fake house of cards. We're really trying to meet kids where they're at and praise each of their kind of, you know, next jumps in development. Mm-hmm. And then we're also trying to say, at the same time, you're not always going to be good at everything. You're not always going to find success in each thing you try. And that's why your self-talk has to be, I have been successful in other ways. I could likely be successful again, and I can sit with this, and this is going to be okay. But that emotional coping piece coupled with the feedback piece is huge for raising psychologically healthy adults. It's really bringing them into a place of reality, yeah. which I think is so important. I mean, we all want our children to be have great imaginations and, you know, dream big and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, giving them a dose of reality and simply just talking to them Absolutely. and creating realistic expectations is extremely important. Now, AD, ADHD and ADD are things that are very um widely thrown thrown around mm-hmm. um it it ju- it means inability to sit still and focus yes uh bring it, us through bring us through exactly what it means right. so it's ADHD so first we can start with that ADD hasn't existed since 1994 it's still talked about in that yeah. way in yeah. society partly because ADD has less stigma associated with it. The thought is that without the H, you know, you're just inattentive. Maybe you're just a spacey kid. You're not as hyperactive or impulsive. But as of 1994, it became ADHD with different subtypes. As of 2013, it became ADHD with different presentations. We'll talk about what that means. There's two clusters of symptoms in ADHD, inattentive symptoms and hyperactive impulsive symptoms. And the thing is, you can be diagnosed with ADHD inattentive presentation, meaning you have six of nine symptoms on the inattentive axis. You can be diagnosed with ADHD hyperactive impulsive presentation. Wait, I should tell you one thing, right, there you which go. is that the people listening to this podcast yeah. have slept like three hours in the last three days. <laughs> so just like take it, take it 10 all right, IQ. All right. you, want me to, you want me to take the, you want to take just, the educator just hat take on? us back yeah. to first year. All right, <laughs> so here, I'll throw this out. Yes. If you want more information on the diagnostic criteria yes. related to ADHD, you should go to childmind.org Perfect. or understood.org or attitude, which is another kind of ADHD-focused website. Um, but the thing is, for the symptoms, there's inattentive symptoms, there's hyperactive impulsive symptoms, and you can have a cluster of inattentive symptoms or a cluster of hyperactive impulsive symptoms. The, the basic flagship symptoms are difficulty focusing, difficulty with distractibility, uh, difficulty organizing yourself, and then difficulty staying in your seat, not blurting things out in class or interrupting adults. Mm-hmm. Now, all of those can be normal behaviors of childhood. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is... Sounds like toddlers. Right. Well, one of the reasons why we're so cautious in diagnosing ADHD amongst younger children, one of the reasons why behavioral parent training approaches like we've been discussing are the frontline recommended treatment by the CDC and other organizations is because at that age, it still may be coming from a number of different causes. One of the things we always talk about with ADHD is that inattention or difficulty focusing can be a symptom of ADHD, can be a symptom of depression, it can be a symptom of post-traumatic stress, it can be associated with a learning problem in a certain area, speech-language difficulties, head trauma, uh, you know, a a couple different medical uh, explanations. So diagnosticians need to both rule in, you know, a particular Mm -hmm. disorder Mm -hmm. at the same time that they're ruling out everything else as an explanation for the symptoms. That is a massively complex problem to try to confront, Mm -hmm. which is the reason why we don't really want anyone to try to solve it by Googling at two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Well, also because you go down the Google wormhole and you can diagnose anyone with anything. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, it's interesting because on the one hand, as a, as as a parent and a student and someone who's endlessly curious, I right. do do that because I, because it makes me in some ways feel more empowered to have access to information. Sure. But on the other, it's hugely confusing because 
to your point, it can say, you know, are, are you tired? Do you feel like maybe you could use some more time to yourself? Do you like, you, then you must, you know, have PPD or whatever. We're still in a non-mental health abbreviation. But it's just, it's, it's complicated. And I think um, on the one hand, I think diagnoses are comforting to people because mm-hmm. then you have a path forward and then you right. can start to pursue a strategy of treatment. But I also think to your point, it's almost it's it's equally rewarding and valuable to to um, to rule things out as it is to rule things in, and that's what it sounds like. You're very very cautiously and very carefully. The 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 diagnostician is actually putting the puzzle together because that's what really it sort of like worms in my head sometimes because. We do want, we, as we're humans, we like boxes. We mm-hmm. like categories. We like people to put things safely in, in different little categories so we can understand them. But the human brain is so complex and so developed. It develops so quickly and it changes so dramatically. I love the idea of like brain plasticity and that you're constantly evolving and that a child who, you know, they don't like to talk about cures, quote unquote, because with the brain, it's really hard to know what is cured and what is um, ameliorated or what is, uh, you know, you have strategies that are better now. But, um, but uh, you know, you can have a child who struggled with so many things at four who at 10 or 15 presents none of those things. Do you see a lot of that? Do you see a lot of like growing out of it? No. No. Uh, you know, I think we we caution parents against the growing out of it kind of comforting thought. Mm. Again, it goes back to see us. Come and see a mental health professional and let's talk about whether or not it's something that could require some support. Because there, there are three options here. One is that the child could grow out of it. Yeah. Another is that, you know, a child with some intervention might grow out of it faster as in, like, we can accelerate that right. process. Right. Or there's really something wrong that they will not grow out of and that only has negative amount developmental consequences for mm. that person. So we're still trying to make it so that screening is something that is not a dirty word. Yeah. That if yes. you go for a mental yeah. health screening, it becomes something where it's, it's just like getting an eye screening at school or, you know, getting checked out of the pediatrician. We'd love for people to think about it that way. I think the issue with mental health is that if you go online and you type in, you know, why doesn't my child see the faces on the people who are performing in my daughter's ballet performance, someone might, you know, write, like, your child probably needs glasses. Mm -hmm. Like, this is an issue. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go on and say, why can't my child focus, you're going to get three websites with great scientifically supported information and four websites that inform you that the psychopharmaceutical, you know, machine is attempting to medicate your child and convince them of, you know, the fact that their beautiful childhood has gone up in smoke and, you know, now they've got something really terrible. And we're really trying to kind of fight that particular stigma that, you know, that's what's actually going on in this situation. We want people to ask those questions. If their child's focus is developmentally appropriate, if they're focusing as well as their peers, to send a clinician in to be able to say, look, let's look at all the ways that these symptoms could be caused. And to know that one of the conclusions that's possible there is for the clinician to say your child's completely normal. Right. I'm sure something that you hear sometimes as well is, do they just need a different kind of style. Are we trying to create all of our children to be like lemmings? You must sit down. You must do this. You must do this. I mean, I'm somebody, I hate sitting still. Right. I do not like going to movies. I do not watch TV. I want to be running and jumping. And I've been like that since I was younger. That being said, I could make myself, I mean, I'm sitting down here right now, right? right? I'm not fidgeting. I'm not, you've not been doing yoga while we've been talking. I am not upside down, guys. I am right Uh. side up. Um, You know, that being said, I like once, once everything's over, I am somebody who I will be excited to stand up. If you, if people, but like afterwards, people will say, oh, would you like to sit down? Like, absolutely not in a million years. Um, You know, and so I, I, like my husband, for example, loves to sit down. He loves to watch movies. He doesn't want to get up a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And we're, we are the yin and the yang. And you could say that maybe he was the kind of person who could really, really, really focus in class. And I was somebody who had to make myself focus in class, but I would prefer to be doing something else. How much of as well, you know, as the kids who don't have as great, you know, impulse control, that how much of it is just that, that they're just different, you know, and and is that something, are we saying that there's something quote unquote wrong with people um, when it's, when they're just really not conforming to society? So it's funny that 
Uh, earlier, we were talking about the idea that previous generations talk about how they just told kids to sit right. and have great manners. And right there, that's the kind of uh, pr- parenting philosophy of today mm-hmm. that's at odds with that, which is this idea that, like, maybe the objective isn't that our kids sit as, you know, uh, amazing little mini adults mm-hmm. at the table. But maybe the idea is that we're putting them into too many little cookie cutter boxes. But when you think about you know, what we're, we're trying to do in mental health, it is not to stigmatize anybody or, or over-pathologize anybody. It's really to look at that last, you know, category of impairment. It's that we agree that humans are, you know, incredibly varied in terms of their presentation, and we don't want to make anyone feel bad for who they are. And the thing is, if the fact that you wanted to move around, which is true of, you know, lots of toddlers and lots of kids in elementary school grades, that they benefit from movement and that they should be moving around, uh, we want to figure out if that's, you know, something that looks like your peers. So if we go in and do a classroom observation when you were five years old and, you know, you had three kids you were playing with at recess and maybe stood at the side of your desk a little bit or asked the teacher if you could take a few more water fountain breaks, that might not mean that there's any particular clinically significant thing going on. It's just that your kid needs to move a little bit more. But if, on the other hand, the teacher said she misses half of every lesson because she's constantly doing cartwheels in the hall and tells us that unless she's inverted during reading, you know, there's no way that she's going to be able to focus. I could picture I this. I had my moments. Right. Well, that's the whole thing is we might say, like, at first with a young kid, let's give you some strategies that'll help you to shape Hilaria's behavior while she's, you know, in her in your classroom so that maybe she could be right side up mm-hmm. during reading, but you give her some inversion breaks, you know, whenever uh, she's completed her reading assignment. Or we might say, like, if she asked to take a bathroom break in the middle of math, your answer could be, you know, I loved what you did in your math assignment yesterday. I need you to do two more problems, and then you can do five cartwheels in the hallway, two for five. And, like, you know, we'll make a deal. And then you might sit there and say, well, I do like my teacher and I like being told that I did the right thing. So I'll do my two mm-hmm. problems and then get my reward of my cartwheels. The motivation. I, I know. Right. I what, what do you make of the role of diet, if at all, in, in all of this? So what we generally say with diet, physical exercise and sleep are that for all humans, they are good for mental health, but they are not a treatment for any mental health disorder. Mm. So eating healthily, sleeping an appropriate amount of time each night, decreasing the use of screens within an hour of bedtime, you know, those kinds of things, uh, and then getting physical exercise, all are really helpful for mental health. It's one of the reasons why adults spend almost their entire adult lives trying to get enough of any of the three of those. Right. You know, so we know that that helps us. At the same time, for example, for ADHD, there is no dietary change that has shown scientific evidence of treating ADHD. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we still go back to, look, have a healthy diet, exercise, and sleep, but don't put your hopes in a gluten-free diet right. for treating the symptoms of ADHD. What, what excites you about what you get to do? What makes you happy, happiest when you see parents and families come to you? Well, there's two answers to that. One is I was raised by a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Oh. So the, the thing is, I feel like it's in my blood to be thinking about humans in this way. Like my family thinks about what's going on for people, what's causing them pain. You know, what are the interpersonal dynamics going on in this situation? And how do we help them? You know, how do we help make things better? So I feel like I grew up with that in my blood. And that's really what is rewarding for me. Uh, I think... As I've moved forward in my career, the extra reward that I've gotten from kind of the the micro of kind of solving situations or helping people to problem solve around situations that are causing them some level of anguish uh, is the ability to then communicate to larger audiences uh, about how to do those on kind of a larger scale or how to problem solve on a larger scale. So I've gotten really passionate about making sure that if there is something we know in science, that if people aren't reading the article in their ivory tower, you know, they're not aware of it, I'd love to try to be as much of a mouthpiece as I can for getting that out there. Like to your audience and the moms who've had three hours of sleep. Like, like on mom brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, going back to, to milestones, so one of my go-to websites, even, you know, for kids in, although I, ha- I realize I haven't done it in like a long time, um, which just shows you that it is my fourth child, is the weekly milestones. 
Um, so, you know, there you can do like babycenter.com, all these different mm-hmm. things. You sure. can say, okay, this week they should be looking back at you. This week they should be rolling over. This week they should be doing this and that. Right. How early can we see signs of ADHD? Um, and I mean, you, I know that you said that you were cautious to, to diagnose early because, you know, toddler, toddler behavior. Um, and then, you know, I mean, are you, are, do you feel comfortable at speaking to autism? Uh, sure. So I'll start with, uh, ADHD. You can see signs of ADHD early. The thing is you may wait for a while for, for confirmation, right? So you may see a kid who, for one reason or another, is you know, moving very, very quickly around, say, their preschool or daycare classroom. So it might give you some sense that you know, these symptoms could be there. But there's a large percentage of kids who, over the course of you know, the early part of childhood, may normalize a little bit more. Like There's also research, for example, on the diagnosis of kids with ADHD when they're in the oldest birth month for their grade and the youngest birth month for their grade. And there's some research showing that uh, there's a much higher diagnosis rate for the kids who are on the younger end of the spectrum because they look more immature, which right, is then something right. that clinicians should consider. Like, where is your child in relation to the age of the other kids in the grade? And, you know, those are factors that we always want to consider. And the reason why that research, you know, has heft behind it is because, especially at younger ages, there can be huge differences between the kids who are, you know, 12 months apart in a four-year-old class. Right. You know, that's uh, something we want to kind of pay attention to. Um with autism, I mean, it's, it's similar in the sense that autism is highly genetically loaded as well. So you can see, you know, signs of autism, uh, I would say, more significantly uh, early on in development. In the sense that because autism is, is related to a number of social and communicative deficits, for kids in particular who are, are uh, you know, significantly on the autism spectrum, you may see from a very early age that they don't uh, have a range of facial expressions, that they don't engage in back and forth exchanges, that they tend to have interests in things that are not people related. Like they may have interests that go far beyond, like most kids, for example, might be interested in the parts or the moving parts of things. But for a child on the autism spectrum, uh, it may be something where they, they are far more interested than most kids. They want to look at every clock for long periods of time and they get angry and start throwing a tantrum if you bring them away from their passion for clocks, which gets to like a circumscribed interest. And then they also may have deficits in, say, showing, uh, you know, toys to adult caregivers or kind of, you know, sharing their experiences with other people in, in such a way that from a very early age, even around the toddler years, you can be fairly sure that they're, they're falling on the spectrum to some degree. Mm-hmm. And for all of these, it, it strikes me that the earlier you seek treatment or diagnosis, the better off. Is that because the brain is more pl- more pliable early on or... What, what do you make of that? The thing is, our, our brains are plastic throughout our entire life. They're still capable of adaptation, uh, you know, even all now, the time. Even at 32. Right. <laughs> but there are, of course, massive critical periods in terms of developing certain skills, uh, you know, during life. Like, for example, with emotion regulation, it's thought there's a critical period prior to age 10 in which you're developing kind of that circuitry. Mm. So we want to make sure that we're getting intervention to decrease impairment, especially during critical periods of development, where everyone else is learning a skill, and we don't want a kid to be distracted from, you know, being able to kind of acquire that skill. Your point about you know, early intervention, every study will show you that if you have a clinical disorder, the earlier you get it treated, the better off you're going to be. Uh, untreated ADHD, for example, has uh, consequences in literature of, you know, increased number of traffic accidents, uh, you know, increased uh, chance for substance abuse, uh, increased number of tumultuous personal relationships, divorces and breakups, uh, you know, all kinds of developmental effects where if you're not aware of what you're struggling with and you're not aware of how to support yourself or get others to help you in supporting, you know, your mental health, there can be lots of, of, you know, negative consequences for life. We just want people to get treatment up front. Interesting. Now we we do something on um, we do something on here that's called our favorite things. Okay. Um, and which you know I mean gets us as silly as like our favorite under eye concealer that we're just dying to know what your favorite one is. Um, but it could be you know you know for you it'd be interesting um, a to a, a book a really great book or or a tool for kids or um, what what other kind of um, things would you 
would you think? Like, it's something that would, would help us to just be the most amazing parents. What can we buy to be a great parent? That's, that's a good question. Uh, my first answer is support legislation that allows for mental health parity. That would be the best way to be a great parent. Because the earlier you get, uh, you know, any legislator to pay attention to the idea that seeing a pediatrician is as important as having access to a mental health practitioner, right. the better. Uh, that's the best thing we can do for our kids. Uh, you know, given that legislation is slow moving and maybe dependent on all kinds of different things uh, in terms of books and resources. I mean, I think that, as I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, there are websites that are great resources. So our website, childmind.org, has hundreds of articles on different fact, mm-hmm. different topics in child development, diagnoses and things in mental health. Uh, and as I said, Understood also has lots and lots of resources for parents. Um In terms of books, I mean, the thing is, for me, a lot of the book recommendations that I make are based around uh, parenting strategies for managing behavior. So the one that I recommended earlier, the Everyday Parenting Toolkit, is my most frequent recommendation, partly because it's a lighter version of clinical interventions related to behavioral strategies that we know work to kind of manage kid behavior. Um, If we're talking about, uh, you know, managing ADHD, uh, Russell Barkley has a number of books for parents that are organized for both parents and educators as kind of strategy manuals for how to support both kids young and old who have ADHD symptoms. It's kind of, you know, my area of expertise. Cool. And where and where can people find you, follow you, learn more about you? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, psychologists notoriously do not have large social media presences. Um, partly, but you should be so good at connecting I with people. Know, well, the, the thing right? is, you're, you're told from early on in your graduate training that the idea is for your patients to be able to access you, you know, through professional means, and that it actually undermines your professional effectiveness if, you know, it's they can changing, find that picture of you in Cabo. World, it's a changing right? world, my Agreed. friend. So I, I am actually... <laughs> Just um, creating a Twitter account, I think tomorrow is when I'm creating wow. it. Oh, wow. it. Well, do we know what it's going to be? So it'll that have we can some iteration you? of like Dr. Dave Child Mind, and it'll be linked to our Child Mind Insta and Twitter. Okay. Excellent. So, so everybody stuff. search for that. Because right, exactly. Childmind.org for Child now, mind. though. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. God. Yeah, thank, thank you. That was Dr. David Anderson. I feel like um, I'm just going to, you know, honestly, I feel like the takeaway is just to sit with what he what he had to say. There was so much there, so much information and and expertise around um, around parenting today and, and parenting children with different needs. I loved what he was talking about in terms of consistent. Uh, consistent and measurable expectations, consistent responses, letting some things roll off our backs. I feel like we could all benefit from yes. this. Pick, pick your battles. Yes, pick your battles. Pick your battles. I gotta do that. <laughs> do that. And you know what? Little, little by little, you, you will see improvement as long as you stay consistent. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for our favorite things. I know. Mm. I so I forgot mm. to pump during the break. Oh god, it's you poor fun. thing. Okay, fun guys, we're gonna no, give you no, a really no, super fast. No, no, this is happening. This is happening right now. We're giving you a super fast favorite things because Hilary's gonna pump. Oh, okay. So, so. <laughs> well, if you guys start here during, <laughs> you just know that I whipped out just my pump going, and it's just happening. Just happy. keep going. <laughs> just keep going. I'm telling you, I heard things. In no, the people pump. people say that I heard wacko, 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 oh, wacko, wacko. wacko. Yes, that that totally. one is a little close to home. Totally. So now it's time for our favorite things. Daphne, what are you talking about? Your favorite things. Okay, so the Beauty Blender. I feel like this is a product that a lot of people have probably seen around. It looks like a little teardrop. It's a sponge. You can get it at Sephora or any beauty supplier, but I literally just order them on Amazon. Um, This is a little tiny sponge that has basically replaced all the brushes in my makeup kit, except for an eyeshadow brush and a blush brush, um, because I can apply. So essentially, I, I dab my foundation all over my skin, and then I use the sponge to fluffy little clouds it I just smudge it right in and it makes this totally flawless velvet luminous skin finish that I'm obsessed with and then I actually flip it around and use the other side to apply the finishing powder so that you get that like matting effect where you need to the trick to using this sponge though is you have to get it wet first otherwise it soaks up all of your 
product because it's a sponge and getting it wet makes it so it won't drag on your skin. It won't pull product off. It again, gives you that really lovely finish. So beauty blender, grab one and keep it in your kit and it will make your life a lot easier when you're doing your makeup. Okay. So um, my favorite thing today is about um, how I reinforce good behavior with my kids. So, and I, you know, everybody knows like the reward charts and the, everybody has different like reward systems. So what I do, I got a little basket. I got all of these things on Amazon. I got a little basket and then I got patches that you would put on like a jacket. Um, like, you know, everything from like lollipops to uh, baseballs to, you know, um Uh, rainbows and stuff like that little animals and throughout the day when I see my kids do good things I will give them a patch like and it could be something really simple like you know they (laughs) I put it on silent why are you talking to me shut up (laughs) I'm so sorry that's so funny. That's so funny. No, that's so funny. I literally no, told no, it to be quiet. No, I love it. You're bad, Siri. You're so bad. Bring their plate and put it put it in the in the sink, or they will say please, or so they'll say thank you, or they'll share, or they'll just you know give one of one of them each other. I'm sorry, I'm not speaking well, mom brain. <laughs> give somebody a compliment or whatever whatever it is that they do something that's very sweet and good that they got ready very easily in the morning. And I'll give them just one of these little like patches that you would put on a coat, like little iron patches that they think are super 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 magical. Um, it's kind of like a sticker except they're reusable. Um, and I keep them in this little basket, and then I have another basket that's like the, the reward pile. Um, and the, uh, the thing is, guys, that they are allowed to give them to each other. So, like, Rafa could notice that Carmen shared her toys with him. Um, then he can say, wow, you know, I think that Carmen gets a patch. Now, all these patches go into the community basket. So they are all have this incentive to all behave well and get along together. I mean, it's we're a work in progress, so sometimes it's really effective and sometimes they're like, okay, whatever. Um, and then at night, so after bath time, I have them sit around and we count the patches out. And then I have this like pile of pennies and then we exchange the patches for pennies. They each have a little piggy bank and they each get to, I, I, I put the pennies in threes and I do a one, two, three, four, five, six. So they are each like putting their own little pennies and they get so excited to put the pennies in their little bank. And then we put the banks away. Once they get to a hundred pennies, then they buy a toy, which obviously costs more than a hundred pennies. And I have picked the toy out ahead of time. Um, But they will give me their pennies and I will give them a toy. And they just get excited. I mean, we talk about counting. We talk about being kind to each other, that they're also um, learning to teach each other kindness because they know that they will all benefit if everybody's nice to each other. Um, so I've been finding that that has been working really well. So all of these things I, I got on Amazon, they're little patches, the little baskets, um, and then um, I, any kind of uh, piggy bank that usually one that at this age that is not breakable, I would recommend. They have these really cute like um, stuffed animal ones that that, uh, so that the cute. kids like yeah but that's like my little system that's my favorite thing I love that thanks so much for listening <laughs> what that <laughs> don't forget to rate review subscribe tune in next week send us your notes send us your emails send us your midnight musings yeah, at just thoughts mombrainpod at gmail.com we love 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 hearing from you guys hasta la próxima chao niña this is Mombrain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.